0: Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Dean Seal.
1: Hey, what's going on?
0: Hey, Dean, and Haley Knoth. Hey, Dean. Hey, Amber.
1: Hey, guys. So before we get started, Amber, I, I got some big news in the sports world, and I, oh, I had to bring it God. up to you first. You were, you were my A1, number one person I wanted to bring up. <laughs> uh, there's There's been a labor dispute In the MLB, and now we're going to be pushed back a couple of games, at least a couple of games, before the baseball season starts this year. You love employment, and you really love sports, so I needed your take first. If that's You
0: know what, Dean? I'm glad you softened this with labor news, (laughs) because it's the only way I'm going to have any take on this whatsoever, other than I did have an annoyed husband who was like, oh, man, baseball's not starting. So I was aware of this, in fairness to me, and my lack of sports knowledge.
1: I feel like that's an encapsulation of how everyone feels like this is a deeply detailed labor dispute uh, that has so many facets going on. And the world at large is just like, oh, man, no baseball for two days. <laughs> ah, come on.
2: Can we have nothing good <laughs> in this world? Yeah, I hear
0: you. I do have some good news for you on this front, though. Um, our own Tim Ryan on the Employment Authority Group here at Law 360. He did write about this as the lockout was happening and the over under from some knowledgeable observers of what's going on is that there's still some pretty big and good incentives for both sides to come to the table and actually reach a deal. So hopefully this is just a temporary blip in the road.
1: Right. Did you have any thoughts on the labor dispute itself? I don't want to I don't want to get into this for too long, but when you read through it, it's it's pretty interesting. There's so many little sticking points in this agreement.
0: Yeah. Sports union contracts are are always really interesting because the dynamics of the workplace is so different from than like, say, newspaper reporters or factory workers or something that has a year-round cycle as opposed to these really seasonal things. So yeah. you do get pressure a lot like this right around big events. So either the start of a season or World Series or you know things like that tend to make things flare. So that's part of it. But I think it's it's unlikely that this one will turn out the way it did the last time there was a big lockout, which actually did end with uh, no World Series that year. So right. we're unlikely to see that kind of level of trouble here.
1: Right. That was in the 90s, right?
0: 94, I think, is mm-hmm. what Tim's reporting reminded me of because I didn't remember that, but <laughs> he did. Good reporter. Um, yeah. So
2: that didn't scar you for the rest of your life?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it did not. But we do have a bunch of other stuff to talk about in today's show. Um, Dean and I have a really interesting conversation coming up a little bit later with one of our favorite returning guests, Andrew Strickler. We bring him on anytime there's an ethical quagmire. And boy, oh boy, judges not recusing themselves when they have some stock ownership is, in fact, a, a big mess. So he comes on and kind of breaks down the latest on what's been going on with that.
1: Yeah, it was great to hear, Andrew, kind of see all angles of of this new scandal that we're only kind of now understanding uh, just the depths of. But Amber, did you want to start us off? I mean, I feel like, you know, the Super Bowl is now behind us, but the Super Bowl of the legal world is now finally revving up. Do you want to tell us about this big news?
0: I love that you lean into all of our cheesy sports metaphors at this point, because this show has become a de facto sports podcast. Um, yeah, I almost feel like we've buried the lead here because the biggest news in the legal world in a while is the nomination for the Supreme Court of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. This was largely expected. She was a front runner, but it's official. She's the nominee. I'm just going to keep calling her KBJ because I've missed having a justice or potential justice that had a good three-letter initial nickname we could use. And KBJ is good. She's A DC Circuit judge. She was nominated Friday. I think most people have heard this. She's the nominee to replace retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. If you want to get to know the potential justice better, I cannot recommend enough our sister, Show the Term. They did a really great episode this week where it's basically KBJ in her own words. They feature clips from a bunch of her speeches, from her court proceedings. And you get to know more about her judicial philosophy, but also what I found really uh, endearing listening to the episode is that you kind of get a real sense of her personality when you hear it in her own words. So everybody should check that out on their stream. But I also wanted to talk about it, too, because, you know, we can't talk about the Supreme Court enough, at least for my tastes. So never. Yeah. On our show, I wanted to do another thing that could give the listeners some insight into what kind of justice she could be. And I thought we could just run down some of her highest profile opinions. These are things she's probably going to be asked about during her confirmation hearings, and those kick off on March 21st. So we're really getting close to that date.
1: All right, Amber, so yeah, fire away. What are some of these cases we need to know before these confirmation hearings?
0: Lightning round style. I want to just go through about four of these. Jimmy Hoover, who's the uh, co-host of the term, he compiled this list, so it's a good one. And I do want to say one note about the ones we're going to talk about. She was only elevated to the D.C. Circuit last summer. So the bulk of her record, about 500 cases, comes from her time as a district court judge. And every case I actually want to highlight in this conversation is from that era. So just something to know. The first one, let's start with maybe her best known opinion. She delivered an early victory to the House Judiciary Committee in its lawsuit that was trying to get the testimony of ex-White House counsel Don McGahn. And he was going to be asked about possible obstruction of justice by President Trump.
2: Ooh, very juicy.
0: Yeah, I mean, you really don't get more eyeballs on a case than something like that. It was a lot of, you know, political intrigue around this one, as well as, you know, just the actual facts of how to apply the law in in this area. So the Trump Department of Justice had argued that the president's aides enjoy absolute testimonial immunity and that they couldn't be hauled before Congress to talk about any matters of executive privilege. In her ruling... Judge Jackson issued a lengthy 120 pages and rejected that claim of immunity. Here's a quote. Compulsory appearance by dent of a subpoena is a legal construct, not a political one. And per the Constitution, no one is above the law.
1: That's a dope line.
0: Pretty tightly sums up, right? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Whenever you can say no one is above the law, I feel like there's no rebuttal.
0: (laughs) Sure. I mean, it's a it's a classic drop-the-mic move. Um, Yeah, there's obviously a lot more to the ruling than that since it's 120 pages, but that's the top line. This one had a lot of back and forth after the ruling. She was reversed by a a 2-1 panel of the D.C. Circuit, but later an en banc panel reinstated most of her ruling. And ultimately, the whole issue was resolved when Biden was elected and took office and the deal was reached that the committee would hear testimony from McGann. So this all did get resolved, but... I think it's one to highlight because it was so high profile.
1: Yeah, it's a good foot forward, I suppose, to just to kind of understand her interpretation of like politics meshing with law. Yep. Um, but this next case is not quite that, I would say. I don't think it's quite has the auspices of uh, <laughs> of uh, it doesn't. politics.
0: This is taking a swerve. Do you remember the Pizzagate incident in D.C.?
1: Unfortunately.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if that's ringing a bell, you'll probably also remember that Judge Jackson was actually the trial court judge who sentenced the shooter in that case to four years in prison. So let me just kind of backtrack and and remind you in case you've forgotten Pizzagate. Edgar Madison Welch made a bunch of national headlines in 2016. He had driven from his home in North Carolina to Comet Ping Pong, which is this neighborhood pizza joint in Northwest D.C. He was there to investigate this fake Internet conspiracy about secret child exploitation in the basement of this pizza joint To which there is no basement, for the record. Right. Luckily, he didn't actually kill anybody. So that's the only nice thing about the story. Uh, He did fire multiple shots from an AR-15 inside a restaurant, though. So pretty serious incident Mm, we're talking about.
1: Pretty scary, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in June of 2017, Judge Jackson handed down his four-year prison term. At sentencing, she acknowledged that he thought he was actually going to save children. He had a purpose that he thought was a good one. But she emphasized that, you know, vigilante justice is just not how we roll in America. That's not what we do. So here's the quote from that. You weren't some robber who burst into the restaurant looking for money or trying to benefit yourself personally. But the problem is that in our society, no matter how well intentioned, people are not permitted to take matters into their own hands.
1: I think this was. I I really enjoyed this one in particular because I, I found that her reasoning never really got too hard into like trying to impugn him for believing YouTube conspiracy lies and things like that. That was obviously a big part of this case, but she didn't make that a big part of the sentencing. She focused on like here are what your actions were and what the consequences have to be. And I thought that was I don't know really mature. I wouldn't have been able to be that mature. <laughs> right? I, mean, I Think about this whole situation. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I
0: think that is an interesting takeaway that she's had to address some some things that are. Very controversial. And so, seeing how she's reacted to that, I think is a, a window in, into how she could be if she does get seated on the highest court. For the next one, I want to go maybe a little bit more procedural, but I think it's still really interesting um, to see how she handles a variety of issues. So, in May 2020, KBJ agreed with the Labor Federation, the AFL CIO, that a National Labor Relations Board rule that was just about to take effect actually flouted the notice and comment requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act. This is a rule that would have really slowed down how union elections take place. So what you need to know here is that the NLRB had argued that the case could only be heard by a Court of Appeals. And as a reminder, I'm talking about um, Jackson rulings from her time on the district court bench. So that's where we are with the case. Also, the board had argued the rule was in fact, procedural, and so that qualified it for an exemption from that notice and comment requirement under the APA. Judge Jackson disagreed. Just no on both of those. <laughs> in particular, on the issue of the whether it was a procedural rule, she said this that I thought was pretty interesting. She said that distinguishing between a substantive rule that requires notice and comment and a procedural rule that does not is a, quote, seemingly inscrutable task, end quote. She went on to say that it does become easier when a judge considers that under the APA a rules presumed to be substantive unless it's proven otherwise. I highlight this mainly to say this. There's going to be a lot of stuff if she makes it to the high court that is seemingly inscrutable. Very true. So I think it's really interesting that she like checks that very clearly and says like, but here's how I do in fact, it all of it. Like, I figured it out. (laughs) Like, I think this is the kind of pretty technical thing that often does make it to the high court, that they do have to look at things that are close calls or confusingly worded statutes or many things of that, you know, variety that they have to figure out. So this one, I think, is worth a read if people haven't heard of it before.
2: Very interesting. Love a good in the weeds labor dispute here. You you knew I had to put an
0: in the late weeds oh, yeah. labor dispute on the list. It's my bread and yeah. butter, really.
1: And also, we're not going to get a lot of pizza gates at the Supreme Court. So sure. these are, <laughs> might be a little bit well, more indicative hopefully, of, what, of what. Hopefully,
2: hopefully yeah. not. Let's. let's,
0: let's yeah. So for our last one that I want to talk about, I did want to bring up one to show that not all of Judge Jackson's rulings went against the government, unlike that one I just talked about with the NLRB. So, in September 2019, she threw out a lawsuit from a variety of environmental groups that had challenged waivers that allowed further construction of a southern border wall. And that was uh, down in New Mexico and Texas. So, what you need to know about this one uh, KBJ denied summary judgment to the environmental groups who wanted to stop the border wall. And unlike that NLRB case that we just talked about, she said she simply didn't have the proper jurisdiction over the environmental group's claims. So it's a nice sort of look at how procedural things like can you hear this case come up in a variety of ways and she's not stuck to one line of thinking. She looks at the facts presented to her and decides based on the law. So here's the quote from this environmental case. Congress has unambiguously precluded all non-constitutional legal challenges to the exercise of the DHS Secretary's waiver authority. Adding a belt to these suspenders Congress has further removed this court's subject matter jurisdiction over any non-constitutional waiver challenges. Therefore, this court is without power to address the merits.
1: Wow. Well, if confirmed, she will be in the one court that has the power to address pretty much all concerns. So it's, you know, <laughs> we can get There's past
0: still a few constraints, but yeah, true, not as true. many, not as many. <laughs> I, I brought these up mainly just to do, like I said, like a lightning round of her opinions, but if you want to know more about the kinds of rulings that she has issued, and there is a pretty robust record, I think a lot of these will be brought up during her confirmation hearing. So if you want to sort of do your homework and be in the know before those start, we have a bunch of stories. Our reporters in a whole bunch of different areas broke down some of her record based on subject matter. So, you know, if you're a labor and employment nerd like me, we've got a story for you. The same is true for many other areas. So head on over to our website to
2: read more about her. Awesome. Thank you, Amber. I feel. I feel ready for these these confirmation hearings to kick off.
0: I'm glad you feel ready because it is going to be exciting. I'm going to be jazzed about watching them.
1: Are you throwing a party? This is, I mean, we're going to full Super Bowl metaphor here. we going <laughs> what, <laughs>
0: what kind of foo- <laughs> what kind of food do you serve for justice? I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> I don't know. Serve it cold, though. I don't know. Wait, that's revenge.
0: Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <Sorry. laughs> uh, it's
2: great. That's great. Oh wow. Um, so switching gears here. Into document leak territory, courts around the country this week saw thousands of leaked confidential or restricted records published online. Uh, Not good. Not good. The State Bar of California said Monday that as many as 260,000 of its confidential attorney discipline records had appeared on a website called judyrecords.com. Um, And juvenile cases also um, in a county in Georgia were also published to the site. The leak affected jurisdictions that were using the Odyssey case management system. Um, And that's according to reporting from our own Brandon Lowry.
0: Ooh, that doesn't sound great. What exactly happened? Is this just a garden variety, you know, cyber breach that we are seeing more and more?
2: Not really, actually. It's a little more interesting. Um, So the California bar said that the leak is the result of a previously unknown security vulnerability in the Odyssey system. That's fairly standard. But what's, I guess, less standard is that this vulnerability allowed the non-public records to be unintentionally swept up by Judy Records when it was attempting to access public records.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So it's not like they were trying to do it. It just things got leaked and they got swept up by their software or whatever.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And so the full scope of the leak has yet to be determined. um, But the system is used by courts and justice agencies in seven countries and over 20 U.S. states. And that's according to Tyler Technologies, which owns and operates the Odyssey system.
1: Okay, so this this Odyssey system this is a like owned by a private company. This is not like a a federal government owned entity.
2: Yeah, no. It it contracts with all these jurisdictions.
1: This does seem pretty significant. I mean, what are we looking at here in the scope and size of this leak?
2: Hundreds of thousands of documents have already been found online, um but we're really kind of still figuring out how many jurisdictions have been affected. The California bar said on Wednesday that it was trying to determine which of its 260,000 confidential files had actually been viewed. They've fortunately been taken down um, since this all came to light.
0: I mean, I'm glad they've been taken down, but sort of once on the Internet for a moment, things get captured and sort of never really go away. So it's, it's still not great. Yeah. What kind of details are we talking about? I know you said maybe disciplinary records, like what kind of stuff was in there?
2: In the California leak, they said the names of lawyers accused of misconduct, the names of their accusers, all of that was included in the leak data. Um, And California generally requires the bar to keep discipline-related files confidential, with only a few exceptions. For instance, if a lawyer is charged with violations against their law license, that would be public. Everything else is kept pretty much under wraps. And then perhaps- More concerning um, is several California courts also had docket sheets for juvenile cases leaked. And California has really strict controls on access to those records. Um, They're not available in searches on the court's websites. And juvenile case dockets from other jurisdictions were also posted on judyrecords.com. Those dockets included detailed information like the names of defendants, birth dates, criminal charges, and sentencing information access to those juvenile criminal case records really varies from state to state. But in New Mexico, court officials said those dockets aren't available through the Odyssey system, uh, not even to law enforcement officials. They have to physically go into the courthouse to look at them. But still, thousands of those case dockets turned up on the website this week.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of guesses about why this is very, very bad. But Maybe you can spell it out a little more. I mean, why are we typically so careful with juvenile records?
2: Yeah, when it when it comes to juvenile records, they really have the potential to cause substantial harm to people who got in trouble as children, which, you know, could have been decades ago. Um, Ria Saha Shah, who's the managing director of the Juvenile Law Center, had this to say about it. This is the information age, right? So the first thing we do when we meet somebody is we Google them. If a prospective employer Googles an adult's name and this record of something that happened decades ago is coming up, that creates a perception of who the person is and what we argue is not an accurate portrayal of who a person is.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, I, I don't. Know, I keep getting kind of caught up here on the fact that this was a system that we were contracted out from a third party. So, what is that third party private company? I think it was Tyler Technologies. You said, what are they saying about this whole situation?
2: Not a lot so far. They said they're investigating the matter. They initially said they thought only California was affected. That doesn't seem to be the case from Brandon's reporting. But that's pretty much all they've said. The bar did say they have, the California bar did say they have since disabled online access to most of their records. Judy Records disabled its search function after Brandon's article was published. Um, And the website's information page also now says that it has removed access to the cases it had indexed out of an abundance of caution. This is all still getting untangled, so it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out.
1: A federal judge alerted the Southern District of New York last Friday that he should not have presided over two different lawsuits after discovering that his wife owned shares of defendant companies involved in each case. It's unclear whether the admissions will have huge impacts on either case, but they come in the wake of a widely read Wall Street Journal investigation from last fall, which found that between 2010 and 2018, 131 federal judges presided over hundreds of cases that involved a company in which the judge or family member owned stock. The journal's reporting triggered a wave of late disclosures and recusals affecting some high-dollar or long-running cases. Law360's editor-at-large, Andrew Strickler, did a deep dive on this still-developing situation a couple weeks ago, and he's joining the show today to explore the shockwaves that this scandal has sent through the judiciary. Hey, Andrew, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me.
0: It's always nice to have you because I feel like anytime there's an ethical quagmire, we're like, where's Andrew? Let's get him on the show and talk about it.
3: I love a quagmire.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, let's kick it off with just maybe what is a basic question. But if a federal judge is overseeing a case where they or a close family member has a financial stake, is it breaking the law? Is it just unethical? What are they supposed to do?
3: Well, they are definitely breaking the law. Since the mid-70s, there's been a law that's usually called Section 455, And it bars any federal judge uh, from overseeing a case in which they have, or a close family member has any financial stake, no matter how small or large, it doesn't matter. They have to recuse, disqualify, get a new judge. Uh, It's a very black and white rule.
1: Right. It definitely makes sense. I mean, you don't want a judge that owns stock in a company to also be overseeing a case involving that company. I think we all can kind of see the lines there. But has this come up very much prior to the Wall Street Journal investigation from last fall?
3: Well, it has. And uh, there's been a couple of academic studies. There have been individual cases we've seen where judges have uh, made late disclosures of uh, stock holdings. In most cases, they're uh, very minimal stock holdings, or a situation in which you know a spouse or a minor child or a, a family member owned a, some stock. So it is a thing that comes up occasionally. The Wall Street Journal project really put a light on the scope of the problem in a way that we've never seen before. Hundreds of judges, hundreds of cases. Uh, really, really widespread over many years. And what was really interesting about it um, was not only were many judges um, obviously not following a very black and white rule, but the explanations they offered for how they missed it were all over the map. We had judges saying, well, I didn't understand the rule. I thought that if a uh, money manager was con- sort of controlling my stock trades, that it didn't count. The conflict software that my uh, court uses didn't catch it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of explanations, uh, but clearly a huge problem.
0: I mean, lots of the dog ate my homework. Uh, it wasn't me, it was someone else. But like, what actually was the impact in some of these cases? I mean, are we worried that these times they didn't recuse impacted some? big and important things?
3: Well, not really. And in most of the cases, I'd say in the vast majority of cases, um, it appears that the stock holdings at issue were um, quite small, or they were situations in which they were part of a much bigger portfolio, or it was stock in a litigant that was one of, you know, 10 or 20 or dozens. And there isn't a lot of room in those kinds of situations to say, well, maybe the judge was swayed to, uh, you know, deny a motion or something like that because of some pretty small financial stake. In a minority of cases, though, the financial interest of stock holdings, did get into the kind of tens of thousands of dollars range, you know, into an area where you could reasonably start to say, okay, is there a possibility there that the judge, you know, knew about the stock holding, you know, was, had a slight bias toward a company, which he or she had bought stock, etc. But I'd say that's a, that's definitely a minority situation.
1: Right. But clearly this is, I mean, something of an issue. I know that you talked to some legal ethicists about um, this whole scandal. What did they have to say on the topic?
3: Well, I think the the first thing we should say is that this mess was created 100 uh, percent by the courts. This is not the lawyer's fault. This isn't Congress's fault. The judges themselves, the, the law is very explicit that the judges have a they are 100% responsible for knowing what's in their uh, stock portfolios, uh, if they are owned stock, obviously, uh, and to recuse from cases they are supposed to know. So,
0: Andrew, have we ever had you on the show before where you were like, no, there's one person to blame for the problem. This is very <laughs> clear.
3: Like, I feel like this is a first. <laughs> right. It's, it's kind of a good situation. I, I like... Uh, so, I mean, yeah, the, the first thing, obviously... The the judges created this problem. The judges are going to have to fix it. In individual cases, the impact of a judge, uh, of a case that's already been resolved, a judge being replaced, isn't obviously very big. And again, in situations in which the holding was quite small— There isn't many arguments that somebody, a lawyer on one side, is going to say there's enough evidence of potential bias to reopen a case. We're going to relitigate it. We're going to start over from the beginning. That is a very, very high bar that judges don't want to jump through. At the same token, though, the law was not just made to... Force judges out of cases in which they had a financial stake. It was also designed to promote public confidence in the judiciary itself. The law was written explicitly to make people trust that judges weren't going to be playing around uh, in this kind of area. And when you look through that light and you say, well, how many judges were here? All of these years have gone by. Many, many, many cases were decided by judges who did have even a small financial stake what does that look like? It doesn't look good. It looks really bad for the for the for the courts, and the again the explanations that many of the judges offered that they were simply unaware uh, or hadn't bothered to go through the trouble of uh, making the right disclosures is um, uh, not very. <laughs> doesn't inspire a lot of confidence.
0: Yeah, I mean we're particularly in a era where there's not a ton of confidence in public institutions to begin with in America. So this just seems to add to that narrative of like, oh, yeah, one more thing to think is all messed up and not on the up and up like it should be.
3: It's terrible. It's terrible timing for the for the courts. I I totally agree with you. I mean, uh, n- not that the two things are necessarily related, but the the sexual harassment scandals with Judge Kaczynski and others of recent years the never-ending drumbeat about the Supreme Court, the lack of Supreme Court ethics code, right. uh, the questions about congressional stock uh, trades that have gotten quite a lot of press. You put it all together, and the timing of this is is bad for the, for the courts, for sure.
0: I think there's this overarching feeling that self-policing is not always super great in any institution, and it's starting to seem like that may be true in the judicial branch as well. So you know we're we're left with a really uncomfortable situation here,
3: I agree uh, and I, I must say it was um when the, uh, Chief Justice Roberts at the end of the year acknowledged this problem in his sort of year end state of the court's uh, report, he cast it a little bit in a technical terms and sort of these were isolated incidents. um you know, we can fix this with further ethics training for judges. I must say it didn't go, in my opinion, far enough in, in accepting the idea that the comp- people's confidence in judges following, again, a very black and white, a very basic rule that every federal judge should be aware of, is aware of, really, the fact that they weren't uh, being strict about that, uh, and in some cases, uh, really just dropping the ball completely, judges with many, many cases in which they had presided. Um it's troubling, you know, and, and I, he didn't go very far in saying that this was a wider problem we need to uh, fix in a way that promotes public confidence.
0: If we have this problem and perhaps some of the suggested solutions haven't gone quite far enough, what else could be done here? I mean, is there going to be any congressional oversight, uh, any checks and balances we could imagine here that might change the game a bit?
3: Well, it's interesting because there has been a very uh, bipartisan response (laughs) in Congress to this. Uh, The House almost unanimously, I think there were just a handful of opposition votes. The House passed a a sort of a court transparency bill that has been talked about for some years. Um, That happened in December after the Wall Street Journal story broke. Uh, The Senate just in the last couple of weeks passed a version another court-specific transparency bill unanimously, no opposition whatsoever, that bill, if passed, would put a really hard timeline on when judges are to disclose stock transactions and and would force the judiciary to create a database, a searchable database of stock holdings, which is something that does not exist and has also been talked about in past years, something is going to happen on that front. Just the final form is not clear, but there's a lot of interest there, sh- certainly.
1: Yeah, it's fun to see that kind of urgency from lawmakers uh, on the topic, right as they themselves are being scrutinized for the exact same stock ownership conflicts of interest that can arise. So I can see why maybe this lit a little bit of a fire under them as well. Well, Andrew, thanks so much for coming on and talking to us about this today. I'm sure the scandal will continue to unfold over the course of the next year, and maybe there'll be some updates from you in the future.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Show is something offbeat. And today we're joined by one of our reporters, McCord Pagan, who interviewed a really interesting attorney, someone who helps answer the question Can a public defender be a TikTok star? And the answer to this question is a definitive yes. Welcome to the show.
4: Sure. Well, uh, first of all, everyone, thanks for having me on the show. I'm very honored. Yeah, it was a cool conversation. He was like a super down to earth attorney. His name is Alex Clavering, based in Suffolk County, Long Island. Um, he's a public defender, and I think like he first foremost identifies as a public defender. And he just like is someone who just like happened to get on TikTok, then like kind of happened to connect and resonate with people, and happened to become TikTok famous.
0: Yeah, it's not every day you hear about an attorney being TikTok famous. Because I mean, here's a little secret for everyone: attorneys are not always that exciting. So right. it's kind of fun to have one that's taken a lighter approach to um, his internet personality.
1: Is it weird to want to ask what his age is? I mean, is this like is this is a 19 year old public defender somehow? I, <laughs> That's I, I, don't a question, anyone, actually. I don't know anyone in their 20s or 30s on TikTok. So I, I need to know more. I think he's told me he's 30. Wow. OK. Yeah. So he's pretty young.
0: Well, tell me more about him. Like what what's his deal on TikTok? Is he off telling everybody legal advice? How did he get into TikTok?
4: Um, so he kind of just like um, got on TikTok during the pandemic early on, um, when like everyone was like stuck at home, to did their phones. Like we all were. Um, he kind of like uh, found a cage and got on TikTok, and he started making videos. Um, so he doesn't provide legal advice. He is uh, very adamant about that, especially as one of the memes. Uh, as all these teenagers have found his account and his followers, um, they all tell him like he's our boy. <laughs> <follower." laughs> Um, so he represents sure. all of us. So he would he would get mad at me if I told you that uh, he gives, gives legal advice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so what is he talking about on these on these TikToks though? I mean, is is it still kind of in the legal realm, or is this is he just musing about his life?
4: I think early on he was talking more about a certain Supreme Court cases, certain cases that kind of like really got him interested in the law. Um, and then like now it's kind of become just like him talking about his life. And then at some point he's, there, one of the memes was um, people saying they asking if they can steal ducks in the park, and so he now makes videos about how discouraging people from taking ducks from a public park.
2: So it is illegal to do that. Uh oh. Or are they like? property of the city or that's kind of insulting <laughs> not in california to the haley you're
1: okay don't worry
2: okay okay <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> i love the idea of somebody going into a park and actually stealing a duck like do you want to do that is that a great pet to have taken from the park
4: maybe it's like also the be it's be able to say that you did do that right true oh uh,
0: well sure
4: yeah i mean who among us has not like <laughs> ever thought about wanting to steal a duck from the park at one point
0: This is actually a great spot for us to just drop in a little audio of one of his TikToks sort of reacting to people calling him their attorney and to people sharing their misadventures like stealing ducks from the park.
1: I need to tell you something that's happening to me. Because a lot of you are saying that I'm your defense attorney. I am not your defense attorney. It's. I'm not.
3: I know it's funny, but I am scared. You guys are gonna get me in trouble,
1: and you keep adding me in videos. And sometimes, look, other people aren't seeing these videos. I'm seeing these videos, duetting my videos, saying hey, and then seeing a crime. I hey, so I was uh, doing this. Stop. Stop
0: doing that. I'm not your lawyer. Hey, so uh, the next time you want to commit a low level crime, maybe don't then duet your TikTok video with a public defender who's on TikTok. Just, you know, helpful hints.
1: This is nuts. I thought that was going to be fun, but that sounds like a cry for help. I mean, we need to help <laughs> yeah. this guy did, did you are you helping this guy out? <laughs> Oh, no, I'm not clever enough to do that. Oh, gosh.
0: OK, wow. Let's talk a little bit, though, about like he does seem to really resonate with people, if nothing else. And mm-hmm. I can see why. I mean, he's he's funny, he seems pretty affable in his videos. I can see why people would be like, oh, it's a funny lawyer. That's something you don't see every day, frankly. But what does he actually chalk his popularity up to, McCord? I know you talked to him about how it was a little unexpected that he gathered 700,000 followers on TikTok.
4: Sure. Yeah. So um, he kind of talked. So, like, I should probably add something I mentioned a few minutes ago. Was um, I think he also does like to talk about his own life now, and one of the things he kind of resonates this resonates with people is that you know some people are just like not having a good time. You know, he has his quote about like this isolation, loneliness. A lot of people are feeling in in late stage capitalism. Um, so I think he said those things kind of do tie into the criminal system. Um, so I think it's just like. You know, a lot of people are, they feel like they're struggling right now and he's able to kind of tap into that and kind of like people see that and kind of resonate with them. He's like, yes, I feel that.
0: Well, like on the serious side, he is a public defender and I mean, he's pretty vocal about talking about that. I know he talked about his job with you when you had a chance to talk to him. What does he see about the current role for public defenders and the criminal justice system generally?
4: Uh, I think he would probably advocate for like a disliked overhaul. You know, he's a prison abolitionist. um so doesn't believe that prisons should exist at all. And, you know, I think he sees public defenders as, like, very critical, very important to the system. You know, I think one thing that's important to him is role public defenders and also how they're not paid enough. Um, one thing he mentioned to me is that there's a, kind of a, there's a pay parity between public defenders and prosecutors, which he could get into a little more detail about that, but... Um, we did get into that deep more detail about that with me but yeah I think that's like one issue among others um, and just like really really sees the criminal system as just like not really fair to people in general
0: so he's basically educating the people about what he sees as flaws in the system via duck memes <laughs>
4: he's educating and then there are also dot memes sprinkled in whatever
0: whatever <laughs> sugar you need to put on top i think what that's uh, <coughs> that's uh what people do to get their message out mm-hmm. my last question for you mccord was there anything else that you thought was really funny that was on his page i know people now are probably going to want to look him up for the record his his tiktok handle is lol overruled so easy one to remember nice but is there anything that you just when you sort of were looking at his page that was really funny
4: I know. I love the video when um, someone asked him about uh, taking ducks from the park. And you can see his Columbia Law School mug and him like, slowly pouring a small airplane bottle of vodka into the mug. <laughs> and he's like, coping <laughs> with the idea of these teenagers bombarding me with questions about stealing ducks from the park. Public
1: defenders are so like us in so many ways.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you, as a person who doesn't practice law but does have a law degree, I've had that feeling sometimes when friends and family have asked me legal questions. So, same, same, <laughs> o- LOL overruled. I agree.
4: Amber, has anyone ever asked you if they can steal ducks in the park?
0: No, but now I kind of wish they would. I've asked so much more boring and and just basic questions. If somebody came to me with, can I still duck from the park? At least it would give me the reason to start my own TikTok.
1: Yeah, you say that now, but in a month, you're going to be on a TikTok just saying, stop adding me. Stop telling me your crimes.
0: You know, you guys are probably right. But I have really enjoyed uh, learning a little bit more about this attorney. I think it's a fun um, way to see that even lawyers can find some traction on TikTok and really appreciate you coming on the show, McCord.
4: Of course. Thanks so much for having me.
0: We have a lot of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guests this week, Andrew Strickler and McCord Pagan, and our contributing reporters, Zach Zagger, Tim Ryan, Brandon Lowry, Jimmy Hoover, Sarah Jarvis, and Ryan Boyson. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review. Five stars really does help other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, which has been quite a bit today, check out our website. That's law360.com podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.